Um, in my free time, I run. Uh, I generally run two places, but also for the purpose usually of training for marathons. Uh, the, my, my soiree into marathons was really one that just started in my front yard because one night we had to move our cars because the half marathon route for the flying pig ran right in front of our home. So that was when we had church on Sunday nights. So we were just out there hanging loose and the, you know, we, we saw just the people running down Gilbert Avenue Hill and, you know, those first elite runners, you're very impressed. You're like, wow, how athletic. And then as the time went on, the time was less how athletic to you. Are you freaking kidding me? Like, how are these people managing to run that far? And there was this concept I had of like, wait, if they can do that, I can do that. So I signed up for the half marathon and ran that half marathon and, you know, you know, just had a leisurely pace. It was a good experience. And then I'm like, you know, running that place right up the street here um, at the intersection of Woodburn and where Madison and MLK meet is the split between the marathon runners and the half marathoners. So the marathon runners on the flying pig route continue to run out toward Marymount and then uh, the, the half runners run back toward the city. And they tell you which lane to get in. So when you're splitting the lanes, I just remember looking over like at this mirror of people who were getting ready to run the marathon and the same thought that had occurred to me a year before entered my head, which was, are you freaking kidding me? How are those people going to run a whole marathon? Which then led me to think, well, I need to do that. So the next year I signed up for that and very clearly, I remember coming in down at uh, Pete Rose Way, I think it is, just right at the uh, end of the marathon. I saw Kaylin and my young daughter just across the fences, and I kind of ran, uh, what did I say? Kaylin and my young daughter, the, the, you get the combination. I did this on purpose. So I saw Kelly and Kaylin, and I just remember running over to the side. I just remember uttering out the words as best I could, never let me do this again. But the next spring, I was like, you know, I need to get back in shape and I'll do this. And eventually now, I've run like 13 or so marathons. I brought my latest medal here just because if you always want to know um, how somebody's a runner, you, you know what you do, you ask, you know, they'll tell you. That was the joke. I messed it up. How do you tell if somebody's a runner? Don't worry, they'll tell you. That's the joke. This is why I don't tell jokes as I preach. This is why I run and shut up. You know the really reason why I picked up running? And I never really, it took me a few years before liking it, which you're like, that's kind of sadistic too. Like who, who waits that long to figure out if they like something? But the one thing is I play team sports. I enjoy team sports. But then the older you get, you realize, okay, in team sports, I have to deal with people. And I ran too many soccer leagues where I was like, I was losing money on the deal and then people wouldn't show up. And I was just like, forget it. You know, nobody tells me, you know, like <laughs> stop running or whatever, right? Like it. It just happens. It's all about me. I think that's why I like it. I swear there's a transition up here somewhere. We're in the book of books of First and Second Kings. And um, we've been studying this uh, this summer, trying to see lessons that, you know, from the Old Testament that might seem antiquated and how they fit in. We, we, we discussed last week where we are uh, strategically within this. We're in this realm where we're seeing the conflict between the prophets of God and the kings of Israel. And remember at this time, there were two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom, which was Israel. There was a southern kingdom, Judah. They were split. And whereas Judah had an occasional king who lived a good life, basically northern Israel was a bunch of rebellious rejects, right? And we saw that even 
when, when there was like glimmers of hope, it just didn't happen. And the royalty was standing in fierce opposition against God. And the current king, as we're studying here, will be in 1 Kings chapter 19. And a story of the prophet Elijah. Elijah's main conflict occurred with King Ahab. And Ahab, we see through the scriptures, really was led astray through his spousal choice, where he married a woman named Jezebel, who was a a, a lady that led him towards the pagan worship of Baal. And we said this too, is that when you see the name Jezebel, actually, you know, her real name was Jezebel. So like the worship of Baal was actually contained within her very name. So last week we talked about uh, what I perceive, this was what's interesting. We, we talked about Elijah versus the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And I was talking because Kaylin was sitting in the sermon last week. I was like, what do you think about, you know, what I said in church today? She goes, that was crazy. And I'm like, well, you're just adjusting to your father preaching. But she said, no, that whole story, dad, was just crazy. And I was like, so you had never heard about this match where Elijah went up against 450 prophets. God consumed this thing. She's like, no, I've never heard of it, which I guess shows the lack of biblical knowledge in our house. But maybe you were just like her. I, I think that's one of the more popular stories. Maybe you had never heard it. Maybe it messed with your mind. If that messed you with your mind, we'll go a little further today because we're going to talk about what happened to Elijah after he was part of the murder of 450 pagan prophets. And if you remember at the end of last week, we read this up and here's a picture, you know, just of it. You know, there was Elijah's prophets on fire. There's a bunch of unhappy people and it's going to get worse because they'll be dead soon. And we have this, and by the way, this is one of my favorite, I don't even know where I got this picture, but this is like one of my favorite like clip art pictures that I have. Because I don't know who wrote it, but they're just like, I'm going to give the quintessence of what it meant for Elijah. As we read at the end of 1 Kings chapter 18, the power of the Lord came upon him and tucking his belt into his cloak, his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. And yes, Ahab was riding in a chariot. So this guy just takes off. And I don't know if Elijah's really that old, but that's why I love the picture. It's just like, watch me go. He was a runner. He was gawking on people in the marathon course too. Like, I can do that. Give me a stick. Here's the thing. Uh, I map quested this this week or Google maps it because I was like, you know, just to get an idea of how far it was to Mount Carmel. And you can see how here to where Jezreel is. It's a, a tell is a mound. There are archaeological sites now to tell Yisrael by foot, depending on the route, because there's no direct route walking would take you about nine hours. In a car, about an hour, which is still a little bit, but this is about a 30-mile distance that Elijah outpaced a man in a chariot. Like, that's pretty good if you're trying to average. Like, a good... That's like 30 miles, so it's about six miles longer than... Or four miles longer than a marathon. You know, like a good marathon... You know, I'd say it's about a four-hour marathon. People kind of aim for that. That's like a... That's like a, a goal. But Elijah... He must... Dude just must have been trucking... Which is funny because when you look at godly miracles, I mean, especially if there's any validity to this picture, you're like, this is an understated miracle that the old dude could run faster than a chariot. But there's this concept of it that there was just this victory that God was saying. It was saying, basically, there's a preeminence about my prophet. Not only was he better than the 450, there's this supernatural 
push that I'm putting before him. So it was almost as the message for Israel as he gallivanted from the top of Mount Carmel across the country was that the Lord is going to precede pagan worship. You need to get in behind it. So a story of victory. So now all that sets us up to the beginning of 1 Kings 19, where we'll be today. If you have a blue Bible, what page is that? 255. Emily is going to read. She is a uh, theological graduate and probably will end up having more theological education than I. So while I can still maintain control over her in some way, she is going to read for us. We're, we're, we're glad you're around, Emily. By the way, Emily was declared... 10 years ago, like the first official member of Echo Church. Um, and you have a cert- you probably got rid of the certificate. There was a certificate even we printed. Because we probably, there's a lot, someday I'll tell you, we probably wouldn't have been here if Emily hadn't moved to this neighborhood. It was just this really God thing. So that's why we come back and we give her a rough time. We let her read. So, Emily Gladdering, chapter 19, verses 1 through, and I put 5A there. Um, we're going to end with him falling asleep, but I'll stop you if you keep going so don't worry about it you just go we'll get there now ahab told jezebel everything elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword so jezebel sent a messenger to elijah to say may the gods deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow i do not make your life like one of them elijah was afraid and ran for his life when he came to beersheba and judah he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All right, thank you. So with what happened in the previous week with Elijah having this matchup with the prophets of Baal, the tension that existed there was that ultimately this was a match to the the death. We mentioned that last week. So... Elijah knew there were going to be repercussions of what happened, especially within this whole scene. Understand what set up, again, this is to reiterate those who missed last week, to set up the reason why Elijah is out killing lots of prophets. It's because Jezebel was ruthlessly killing the Lord's prophets. So therefore, Elijah knew what was at stake. And when Jezebel found out about what Elijah did, she was ticked because, again, her name's Jezebel. He killed the prophets of Baal. And therefore, she said, oh, by the way, Elijah, now you have a death wish. I will kill you. Now, this is what's interesting. Elijah had just been part of probably the apex of his prophetic life, right? Fire rained down from heaven when he prayed to the Lord. Like he's on top of the world. And it comes down to this situation to where Jezebel calls him out. And the first thing he does is he runs. He runs again. But the first time Elijah ran, it was a run of empowerment, right? It was this run where he had the work of God pushing on his back. The run of empowerment here is transitioned to a run of embarrassment. Where he's embarrassed about what happened to the extent that he's like, I better get out of the way. So somewhere within this pronouncement from this lady, and it makes you wonder what the sway of Jezebel was. Because not only could she get a king of Israel to follow what she wanted to do, but even Elijah, a prophet who had seen God move, was like, I'm getting the hell out of here. 
I'm moving on down the road. And this time he runs not 30 miles, but the distance is about 100 miles. So again, this is a run. And at some point he drops off his servant because he's like, no, I got to go this road alone. And he's pushing and running. And I really want to see because the first, again, I might see if I can flip back here. You know, we, 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 don't, we get a picture of this where this guy's like, I'm going to take my staff and run ahead of the chariot. We don't have any real good artist renderings of this run that we're talking about in 1 Kings chapter 19. But this run has got to be, he's got to be like quasi crying as he's running, right? Oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man. Because he's running out of fear, out of embarrassment, because he's not now sure that the Lord who was there on top of Mount Carmel will be hit with him here. So he runs 100 miles. Friends, there's these things called ultra marathons now because, you know, marathons are becoming so prevalent, you know. Some of us run them, right? Some of us have mollies in on that. Like, it's like, hey, we, you know, you just go around and somebody's run a marathon. Now people are like, we got to push it more. So there's ultra marathons. They run 50 miles. They run 100 miles. It's just the dumbest thing you've ever heard of. Elijah's running his ultra. What'd you say, lady? There it is. And Elijah's just like, I'm, I'm, it's, it's levels of stupidity. His, though, is one of flight, right? He's trying to get away to the extent that he's so exhausted and perhaps embarrassed that he's just like, just let's let's end this by the way i just there's a story and i don't know if it fits but maybe it does but it's the most fascinating story of a swedish runner named mikhail ekvall and i just love this story because mikhail ekvall was a he he was like a world uh renowned half marathon runner and then there was a race that he was running i think it was back in 2014 or maybe it was even 2012 but the dude takes off in his run and then early on things just aren't working out with him were real well in the gastro department and that dude like um how do i want to say it he's running and i even add a blue box just so that you know for our like lunch later the dude just it was poo like poo everywhere on his shorts right and the the thing about this was though he actually ran he won that race i love this where it's just like look at you can tell the consternation <laughs> But I love this person right here. It's just like, look at that. Like, yep, that's poo. The way that I figured I could connect this was, yeah, you're cutting up. By the way, he, for a while, held the world record, the Swedish record for the half marathon. So he plowed through this, I guess literally metaphorically. But here's the, here's, here's the thing that maybe I should just move on from that. It's just the idea that, you know, you, you want to laugh about it. It's, it's going to turn tables here for Elijah, but there is this point as he's running. You've got to, he's got to be an emotional mess. He's running away from this lady where he just had this best victory. You know what? God does this type of thing where he sets up our embarrassments to actually be a major part of our future. I really think that's what he's doing with Elijah here. Emily, um, this is totally wrong, which let me see. Yeah, I'm, actually, I want you to read verses where you stopped off in verse 5 through verse 11. Wait, through verse 10. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. 
Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So there's the divine intervention right here. Elijah is exhausted. He falls asleep. He's asking for death. He's, you know, he, he, it's to the low point of his life. Um, and think about it. He ran 100 miles, which puts you through some sort of physical exhaustion. But then there's the mental taxing that comes with the idea that he's trying to ponder his mortality. Is this lady going to actually kill me? And the angel responds by giving him food. Which, I guess there's some lesson right here. Because that's how some of us then deal with our situations, right? Like, man, you're having a rough time. And then we eat. We stress eat. We solve right, right there. There is something to where it's helpful right here. I think what the angel is just like, just go eat. The, the specifics of what the angel offered is interesting. Because we see warm cake and water. Which, and Larry, you touched about Zarephath, the widow, in First Kings 17. Where that was the exact meal that he had with the widow who he said, give me the rest of your food. So Elijah, what what really is happening is God's like, let's just continue to poke the prophet and see if he responds. So he gives him the same food that he had before. And, you know, think about that too with food. It sometimes creates within us a feeling of longing. I just got this story this past week. I was traveling with my boss um, and he lives in Dallas, Texas now, but he's also, he's from Pittsburgh, but has lived in the Middle East for a few years. And we would we'd drive past Dairy Queen, and he would just be like, Dairy Queen. And he'd just, like, say it. I'm like, all right. So about the third or fourth time, I'm like, this dude wants Dairy Queen. Queen. <laughs> he wants some bad Dairy Queen, right? So, the, you know, we did our last visit, and I'm getting ready to take him to the airport. And I, you know, Google, you know, like, where's the nearest Dairy Queen? So I take him to Dairy Queen. And I'm just like, this guy really wants Dairy Queen. You guys know me. I don't eat a lot of sweets either. So I'm like, I'm going to have, you know, it's my boss, you know edgy thing had a blizzard he orders a chocolate cone and i'm like he's been talking about dairy queen this whole the dude orders a chocolate cone but uh, so i'm just chatting i was like my boss loves him some dairy queen and they're like really why and he goes well first thing you can't get a chocolate cone in dallas they don't serve chocolate ice cream they just put fudge in on it so if you move to texas you know get your dairy queen chocolate ice cream fix in here lesson number one but the second thing, so I'm just talking, there are these young, you know what I mean? Like there's young small town girls working at Dairy Queen and I'm just jabbing and he goes, well, the thing was, is it reminds me is that there was a Dairy Queen in our town and we used to get our ice cream and sit under the bridge. And he goes, I just think about my whole life and I have this point of nostalgia. So I'm like, that dude like had this innate craving for Dairy Queen, not so much for the ice cream, but how it connected to him to a point in his life that he remembered. That's the power of food, Right. Like, it's, it's one of the reasons, now when I head out west, I'm like looking for an in and out to save my life. Just because it just, it makes me happy. Sometimes it does that. Sometimes food has the power to connect that. We're going to have communion later. It's one of the reasons that I think that Jesus left to us a point of remembrance that involved consumption. And I think right here what the angel's trying to say is, here, try a little of this food. And maybe you'll remember that last time that God worked because... He was there for you. Maybe that will bring a reminder. 
So this goes back and forth. There's two times where Elijah's up, he's eating, he's sleeping, he's up, he's eating, he's sleeping. And then he's just like, okay, finish this trek out, keep going south. And he goes to Horeb, the Mount of God. I could have thrown a map up here, but it would have just been for Steve's pleasure because we don't know exactly where Sinai, Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel. We don't know exactly which mountain it is, but Elijah knows And he gets there, and it's at that moment where God comes to him. Now, it's not an angel, it's God. And God's saying, what's up? And Elijah, and I want you to think about this, because we we take this for granted. Because we're like, everybody in the Old Testament was just chatting with God, right? Like, they they had him on favorites on their phone. No, Elijah... The Lord was speaking through him, but here we get a direct dialogue. So this is a a first-time connection, right? Think about all the crazy crap that God had him do. Elijah gets his first opportunity to communicate with the creator of the universe. And he's just like, man, this sucks. He complains. He uses that opportunity not to be like, hey, God, you've done some great, like that fire thing was awesome. No, he starts, he's just like, look, this is horrible. You might as well just kill me. It should all be over. So how does God respond? And that's actually where we want to get to um, this text here. Emily, if you will read verses 11 and 12. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Um, when, do me a favor, read verse When 13. Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Thank you. So God meets Elijah's self-pity with a massive appearance. So he's like, this is just horrible, God. What are you doing to me here? And God's like, just go, go out to the front of the cave. And then he's like, you know, 70s band, earth, wind, fire, just all comes down here, right? Like it's raining within this. And you get to see the power of God. Like I was gone, I was, I was in East Ohio on Thursday morning, but I guess that a storm rolled in. We were talking about that, like to the point that we had some leaking. Were any of you, did you guys get this storm on Thursday morning? It was just crazy insane and the rain was coming through. Picture that type of thing. But then it was like God calls this shot on it, right? Like just go stand out, see what happens. Huge wind, earthquake, where's the fire? What is, I don't know. It's just like this amazing laser light display. Why does this happen? Because of the location where he's at. They're at Horeb, the mountain of God. This is the place where God promised his people, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Here's 10 rules. I'm going to keep my word. You keep your word. We'll be copacetic, right? And in the same way, and this is when Moses stood out in the, in the mountain who preceded Elijah, right? And, by, and when you come here and connect the dots here, this is why during the transfiguration is Jesus is, is up on the mountain in the northern part of Israel. So, you know, this is south. This is not even in Israel. In the northern part of Israel, Jesus is there and Moses and Elijah show up because they represent the law and the prophets. This is a complete thought. So what even God is doing is that Elijah is a crybaby. And it, I say this stuff because it should make us feel good, right? Because uh, this is where the Old Testament makes sense. You're like, where do I connect? You connect because you've prayed to God, this sucks, right? But even people who talk to God directly, 
We're telling him it sucks. But here's the thing is that God used imperfect people like Elijah and Moses. Read the life of Moses. You start to feel way better about yourself. Have you killed somebody this week? No. Success. You're doing better than Moses. Here's the issue, though, is that the same thing that happened to Moses happens to Elijah. But this is the part that I love. Here, Moses has the chance just to get a glimpse of God. And we see this moving, but this is what happens to Elijah. All this stuff happens, and then, followed by the laser lights display, it's nothing. Now, I know what you're saying, because Emily read the NIV right there. I don't know if you are all NIV readers, where it says there was a gentle whisper. Translators have struggled with this phrase because it doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. So was it, you know, there's this part where you're like, you want it to be Elijah, right? Or, or, or maybe, you know, but would he even say that? It's like God appears where you just be like, booyah. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, actually says that then there was sheer silence. And the reality is, is we don't know what happened in that point. But the thing that all translators come down to is this. There's a mute button. Because what we're seeing is the range of the power of God. We always want God to show up in a huge and massive way, Right? God, I'm going to pray. I want you to be there mightily. But sometimes God is there. We're just looking in the wrong direction. Because instead of looking at the great and huge, God shows up at the mute button. When we listen, it's difficult for us to understand that the God who made everything can enjoy a little silence. Emily, will you read verses 15 through 18, please? The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Keep going. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shapat, from Abel Mehola to succeed you as prophet. That's what you're going to get into. Come on. <laughs> Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Good work. When you get into all those original, actually, you're probably going to study New Testament more than Old Testament stuff, but you'll probably have to take a bunch of Hebrew. You'll get into it. It'll, it'll work out fine. You killed it. But then a lot of you are just like, uh, <laughs> what just happened there? <laughs> because God responded with, hey, I know you have issues. I'm going to list off a, bis- a list of names. <laughs> and that'll solve everything. Understand what is really going on here. Two things. The first thing is, is God says, hey, you have some people that I need you to anoint. Uh, Jehu, uh, Hazael, Elisha, I need you to go anoint those people. Really, just what's happening here is God, and, and these people will occur later in the in Second Kings. I, we might not, I don't remember how much we're actually going to focus on. And so I don't want you to get caught, you know, in the depth of this, but just pan out and see it like this. The first thing that God's just saying is like, hey, Elijah, that's awesome. I still have stuff for you to do. Like, you were not finished yet. 
So I hope you had your cleansing spiritual retreat where the angel brought you food, where you had some sleep, where you got to have that religious theophany, you know, where God shows up huge. And then I gave you the way, like, I hope you had a good centering moment, but now get your ass back to work. You have things to do. Now, this, this is something I, I want to pause before moving on here. Because especially today, the one beauty that we have in our world today is that we're aware of mental health issues. And we see that how that is. So uh, not trying to make the light when we're struggling, just be like, you know, what's the hard thing to do? Just get back to work, right? Like just plow through. That's what you're supposed to do. This isn't a message that's necessarily transferable to everybody. But I think there is something within here. Because sometimes we go to deep, dark places. And if you do, by the way, the first thing that you need to know, and this is going to, well, I'm going to hold on to that. Remind me if I don't get back the first thing you need to do. So that's your teaser for the end. I'll get back to that. But the thing is to recognize is that you have purpose and value and stuff to do. You have something to get done. Um, you know, there's, with what's happening with Rob and his brother Jonathan right now, is a very difficult thing. You know, Rob's had a few tough years here dealing with family. But I think even with this, I think this point of Jonathan's life, there's still stuff that Jonathan needs to get done. And I think part of that, and this is what I want us to be praying with, is his relationship with the Lord and to seeing where that sets out. There's still work to done. Even, get done. even we're in a difficult and challenging situation, we have to view it in that lens. That's what God's telling Elijah. You have work to get done. The second thing he tells is this thing at the end. And he says, by the way, there's still 7,000 other prophets out there. You're not alone. And sometimes that's the challenge that we need to have. When we get in focused on ourselves, when, again, the darkness comes in, we believe that we are alone. And here's the key. We're not alone. And what God is saying is that, look, and this is, how about big on the Lord on this thing? He let Elijah whine to him, Right? And that's what the Lord does. He has broad shoulders. He can take our whining. But at some point, he's like, hey, Elijah, I know that's how you feel. But the reality is, you are not alone. There's others out there. You need to rely on their presence as well. So what God is saying is that there is going to be strength in the plurality. And that's why coming back when we're in our dark places, what you need to realize, first and foremost, more so than the message to, you know, just get back out there and tough through it, is you're not alone. That's one of the reasons that God called you into this group, right? This community is that when you have struggles, it's not yours alone to bear, you know? And sometimes we have varying degrees of that, but you just have to understand is that it does nobody good for you to hold on to that. So find those connections, invest in those people. That's why God calls us into the community for us to realize that we're not alone. And I think that was the most powerful message that Elijah needed to feel. He thought that Jezebel was out to kill him individually. It's like, no, Elijah, she wants to kill all the other 7,000 too. You're not alone. And what we do is we tend to internalize this and make it about ourselves. And this is why I'm also encouraged by a message that comes from 3,000 years ago. This is Elijah, a prophet who spoke directly to God, right? But he had these moments of inward focus that he thought it was all about him. And really, that's what that match up on Mount Carmel did. It was him versus 450. Now he knew God was there, but at the same same time, even when we are relying upon God, sometimes we internalize it and we make it all about us. The key 
to Yahwism, you know, following God, and I was going to say to Christianity, but even at this point in the Old Testament, when everybody says the Old Testament, God's pissed and angry and there's nothing for us there. No, this is the same message that started at the beginning of the world that God saw woven through history that existed when Christ came through the church to us today, is that it was never about the individual. When you study other world religions, and not all of them, but there's a trapping in some of them, is it all... Almost always, almost always, so this is much, comes down to the relationship of the individual and how they exercise their faith. If you are obsessed with Christianity as an independent path to success, then you're never going to make it. So if you came here today thinking, I'm going to get my thing right with God, friends, it's just not how it works. We need each other. And that's what Elijah needed to understand. My thread, as I close this loop, I think back to my marathon running, right? Because I am in the midst of this. And like I said, the thing that I like about running is that it's me against the world. But then I also forget that there's a lot that goes into that. So for instance, just yesterday, I'm training for another marathon this fall. And, you know, I have to go get my run in. That's great. The weather sucks, but you got to do it. And I'm like, hey, Kelly, you know, can you make sure, because we have a daughter and it's best not that we just leave her. Can you make sure that my, our home life is taken care of while I go out for an hour and a half, two hours, go for a run? She's like, sure, you know. So she runs herself, but even though she doesn't run that way, she, she is a major component of that success. Then when you're, you know, you, you go and again, if you've gone to races or helped out to races or anything, you realize how intricate these things are, how planned they are, and how many people it actually takes to pull it off. There are people that have to go down at least six months, sometimes a year before, to pull the proper permits to make sure that the roads are closed. There's a whole slew of marketing people who have to find sponsorships and stuff to make sure there's enough money to go. On race day, there are people that sit out on the course, and those are the people that it just always crashes me up because it sucks enough to run 26 miles but to sit there and watch other people do it when sometimes the weather's horrible i'm like how just jacked up do you have to be to want to do something like this and yet people do it because they feel that way the one thing that has happened to me in nearly every 26.2 mile event that i have run is that there's always been some nameless person that I have never met before, nor have I ever seen again, that has done something to motivate me not to stop in the middle of the race. Sometimes it's like, you know, when I'm lapping the person 40 years older than me plowing through on the course, right? Sometimes it's the person over there who's like, you're looking good, keep running. Like those people who in the whole process of training and finishing up, you never really think of them until you stop and you're like, oh yeah, that was a rough day but that little person gave me a little bit more to go out there but what's funny though is that don't mean crap to me because in the end i get the medal so it's all good as much as i you know have a nice little pile of pieces of worthless metal the thing that i forget is that even though i like it running because it's all about me the reality is is that even when i want it to be about me it's not about me because if there wasn't people running in front of my house back in 2006 that I watched struggling through. And those were the late runners who were just doing this to try to get off the couch or something. I never would have been like, I should try that. A whole collection of community that, let's be honest, do I really care about them? I mean, I do for sermon purposes, but did I think about them much before this week? Not really. When you stop and realize it's about community. And again, that is the message that God had thousands of years ago and it's the same one that existed when jesus came to the church 
one of the most guilt-ridden texts in the Bible, from my perspective, is found in Acts chapter 2. Because there is this realized version of what it means to be part of the Christian community that me pastorally, I always struggle because I'm always like, are we doing this? And by the way, it's not just Steve alone because I get to now travel all over the state and meet people from all over the country. Everybody is grappling with this in churches today because there's this idealized version of how it worked out right when it started that we struggle to understand and we want to see happen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. They, they did this, the, the sacramental aspects, right? So they came together and worshiped and lived, and then when they left, they liked each other, they fellowshiped. Everyone was filled with awe and wonders at the signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And this isn't just like, we don't need to get a commune, you know, and all become socialists for us to live this out by the by. Um, but it was this idea, though, that when somebody was struggling down here, Wherever you were on the spectrum, they made sure. They made sure that they were not alone. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the, enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And the idea for the community is if we're truly loving each other how we need to be, then people would be crazy not to want to be a part of that community. And I don't know exactly why you became a follower of Jesus. Whether it was about you or pleasing somebody else, you know, making them happy with this. I don't know where it ended up, but this is an integral part of what faith is. Christianity is not an individual sport. You want it to be about you. It's not. It's about living life in community with other people. And what's very interesting is that the way that this is best seen, and you might be like, okay, I see that because every week we come and gather. But even smaller than that, the way that this is best viewed is this concept of communion. Because in communion, what do we do? We remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. Right? We remember that this perfect God came down to earth and died a horrible death, but because of his perfect life, his death gives us life eternal. That's Christianity 101, right? But here's the interesting thing, is that then we are called though collectively to remember that every week. That's communion. And you know, Latin scholars, that that commune in communion is etymologically, etymologically derived from community. It's about us coming together. That even what we do here in communion isn't about self. It's about all of us. If we're not fully invested in that, then we're just not doing that well. So friends, I think this was the lesson that God gave Elijah right at the end. Elijah, you thought it was just about you going to battle for me you were finding that little, you know, battle there, but there's a lot of other people who went on in the war. Don't make this about you. And even though we have lots of struggles, maybe that's where you, maybe that's the problem too that you're grappling with right now. Maybe you have a struggle with what you're dealing internally. Do me a favor within that. Don't make it about you. 
There are people here, some of the best people I've ever met in the world are here right now. And they bear each other's burdens. And they're there for you. So don't hold on to that. Let's be community. Let's, let's commune together. Let's remember Jesus as a group. So I'm going to pray. We're going to awkwardly pass trays around. You're going to be like, why don't we get ushers? You know what? That's why I like it. It's because that's what living life together is, right? There's little tweaks of uncomfortableness where you're like, yeah, you know, sometimes it's awkward. Man, that's what being a family is about what we try to be about here. That's what the kingdom of God is about. So let's pray. Let's remember Christ. Let's commune. Heavenly Father, I thank you this day for this gathering right here. We people who have lots of different, different uh, interests, personality quirks, struggles, and you're at right now, we are all together under the umbrella of your son, Jesus. That that's our commonality. We are so grateful. I'm grateful for the life of Elijah, somebody that you called to do amazing things, somebody that struggled with the same struggles that many of us do, that I struggle with. Your prophet did, and you were patient with him, and you comforted him, and you encouraged him, and that's what you can do for us too, Father. And you do that right now in this communion. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, for his horrible death. Because in that we find life. And we thank you for the opportunity that we together have now to remember. For this we are grateful. For this we give you praise in his name. Amen.